turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. So we're going through the book of Romans. Uh, we're at Romans 13. We're taking two weeks to talk about government and its role in the life of a believer. And any discussion on government is going to have to include an interchange that took place just a few days before Passover, about 2,000 years ago. The situation was as such that Jesus had made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. We've got people that are calling out Hosanna, son of David, that he's the Messiah, putting palm branches, garments in front of him. This infuriated the Jewish establishment, especially the religious leaders. They're like, no way. He's wrecking our influence. In fact, on Tuesday of that week, Jesus literally goes into the temple, starts flipping tables, and then he gave three different parables that just exposed the hypocrisy of the religious leaders at the time. It had infuriated them. They wanted him dead. And so they thought they had the ultimate trap. It took place on Wednesday of Passover week. They, uh, they had him. They're, this isn't just clever. It's genius. It's foolproof. And the situation is recorded in the book of Matthew, beginning in chapter 22, verse 15. The Pharisees went and plotted how they might trap, literally like to ensnare an animal, trap Jesus in something that he would say. You see, because the Jews are occupied by Rome, they're not really in a position to go and just haul off and kill someone. They've got to get the Roman authorities involved. And so what they're going to do is they're going to try to get Jesus in a trap. And so they've got it. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God and truth. And you defer to no one. I mean, can't you just see the setup here? For you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? And like, you you got him. There is no way out of this. The poll tax. Yearly, one denarius, everybody had to pay, used to fund the Roman government, um, its armies, roads, military, temples, idolatrous though they be, funded by taxpayers' money. But the poll tax was extremely difficult for a Jew to pay because it basically said, Rome owes and owns you. Rome owns you. You're not of your own. You call yourself the people of God, but in actuality, you're the people of Rome. Pay your taxes. The tax seemed masterful because if Jesus said, no, I don't think you need to pay that whole tax to Caesar, well, then, of course, they could say, good. You're an insurrectionist. We're going to hand you over to the Romans for treason. On the other hand, if Jesus said, yes, you should pay your tax, this poll tax, well then he's going to alienate himself from pretty much all the Jews that thought they shouldn't pay this tax. So what would it be? But remember who you're dealing with here. Jesus, verse 18, said, perceived their malice. He said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? I, I see what's going on here. You're testing me, and you're hypocritical. He said, I want you to show me the coin used for the poll tax. And so they brought to him a denarius, and he said to them, i got a question for you. Who's, whose likeness is this on this denarius? Whose inscription is this? Well, I said, well, well, it's Caesar's. 
happen. And Jesus said this, Then render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And hearing this, they were absolutely amazed. And they left him. And they, they simply went away. Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. That tells us that we owe something both to God and to government. But what is it? What is it specifically that we, we owe to government? And this is something that uh, is regularly debated in households, communities. It's going to be um, a major issue in our country. What do we owe the government? I mean, what is the role of government? To what extent does government have reach? Who should pay taxes? Who should pay how much taxes? What is the appropriate reach of government? Like in issues like health care or marriage. What spheres and to what degree does government run and control our lives? And Jesus said, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Really, the question we need to answer, friends, is how are we who are Christians to live a Christ-centered life as citizen saints? Or to phrase it another way, how are we as the citizens of heaven supposed to live as citizens on the earth? You and I must be able to answer this question well. Because if we don't, the consequences are great. We will lose our influence. We will not be the salt and light that Jesus intended if we can't answer and live this question, the response to that question well. And so how do we do it? Well, let me just review where we've been. Chapter 13, verse 1 of Romans, we see that, uh, first of all, we need to recognize the establishment of government by God's authority. Notice what he says. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, so God is the ultimate authority, and those who exist are established by who? God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and those who oppose will receive condemnation upon themselves. You oppose government. You says, you're opposing my servants. I'm the one who actually gave them authority. And so we see that we've got to recognize that the establishment of government is by God's authority. Second of all, if you and I are going to live well as citizens of heaven, living on earth, we have to respect the role of government in society. And just to refresh you, there are three roles that government has that are God-given. Ideally, this is what God wants government to do. First, they're to prevent the spread of evil. Look at verse 3. For the rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. They are to, Government acts as a deterrent to crime. But a second role of government is not only to prevent the spread of evil, but they are to promote good. Look what he says. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For look at this, verse 4. For it is a minister of God. Do you see that? Government. Minister of God to you for good. The government is to promote the good, the general welfare, the tranquility, the security of its people. It is to do good. It has a huge role in doing good. And third, government has a role of punishing wrongdoers. Look at the rest of verse 4. He says, But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Government has the right to punish 
and inflict penalties, even to exercise capital punishment upon wrongdoers. When he says it bears the sword, the sword isn't some sort of innocuous symbol of power. If God wanted to use just a symbol of power, he could have used like a scepter. But no, he uses a sword. It is to establish that government can penalize, punish, punish, even up to death, wrongdoers. And so this would be very common in the Roman Empire. Even governing officials, they would be preceded by someone carrying a sword. And it was to symbolize they had the power over life and death. They had the ability to exercise authority. Now, God is the one who actually instituted the death penalty. Did you know that? You do if you were here last week because we had quite a bit of time looking at it. Genesis 9-6, right after the flood, God makes it crystal clear that human life is precious and sacred. And he says this, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For why? For they are made in the image of God. And Jesus had the exact same view. Remember when Jesus is arrested in the garden? And Peter pulls out a sword. He's going to take matters in his own hands. And Jesus says this, Peter Put your sword back in its to its place. For all who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. You kill someone, you willfully take another person's life, you then will forfeit your own. Now, one of the questions that we didn't answer last week that is inherent to this text is, is there any justification for war? Whenever since September 11, 2001, the idea of eliminating terrorism, going to war with terrorists that are being harbored in certain countries, has been a reality. I mean, if you look at the atrocities that have been committed, we go, that is so unjust, that needs to be dealt with. You've got these unsuspecting civilians, and they are just murdered and killed. And you have a group like ISIS, creating havoc around the world. And we go, well, of course we should just go ahead and take them out, right? you got a nation that's warring against us. We, we need to fight back. Of course we go to war. But do you have a biblical grounds for doing so? Well, let me give you the three main viewpoints that have emerged within the church on the subject of war and is their justification for it. One is that there is the belief that no war is justifiable. Under any circumstances, never can go to war. It's a position called pacifism. There's another one that's kind of on the opposite of the spectrum, that, that Christians basically submit to their government and agree to fight in any war it engages in, whether it be defensive or they just go on the offense. Like, we want more land. We'll take this over. We're power, more powerful than you. We'll just war on you, and you'll submit. We'll own you. It is a position called activism. But then there is a third that a majority of Christians hold, and that is the belief that believers may support and join in defensive wars against evil aggressors. And this is a position known as the just war theory. Now, I really want you to base your beliefs on the Bible. Don't take my word for these things. You investigate and study them for yourselves. But this is a question that we do need to answer. And I'll tell you that I land in the position of the just war theory as being the right position. I want to give you three reasons why. One, God is the one who considers human life precious. Humanity is made in the 
imago Dei, the image of God. That means we reflect, to a degree, characteristics of the Creator Himself. We're relational. There's a sense of morality. We have certain abilities. We have the ability to rule. We have, to a degree, a moral nature like God. Now, however, due to the fall of Adam, this is severely corrupted. And yet, the reason that every single person is sacred, in a sense, is because we're made in the image of God. He created us. So, first of all, God considers human life precious. And second of all, God commands that protection for human life. Shortly after the flood, God establishes the fact that human life is precious, and if you take another person's life willfully, you then forfeit your own. Genesis 9, 6. That's what he said. Why do you? Why? Because they are made in the image of God. Life is precious, so it must be protected. That then leads to my third premise, and that is that God commissioned government to punish evildoers. That's one of the reasons why this text is so important. Look at Romans 13, verse 4. It says, But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on those who practice evil. So, government bears the sword, and it will be an avenger upon those who do evil. Peter says the exact same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, that government is established for one reason, for the punishment of evil doers. And so you see that in our society, you do evil, you face punishment. Penalties, you kill someone, according to the text, you forfeit your own life. Or if we have a nation that becomes the aggressor and they just start wholesale, start killing people, or you've got groups like ISIS that are committing all their atrocities, government has a role to serve as an avenger. They bear the sword. And so, you and I, we're not in a position to take matters in our own hands, right? If someone wrongs you, you don't like, that's it, I'm going to get back at you. No, we have government that actually functions in that capacity. It's part of what they do. We don't take vengeance personally, but we understand that governments can and have a biblical right to do so. And so whether it be a nation that becomes an aggressor and just starts killing people, or you've got groups like ISIS that are doing all their terroristic atrocities, government has a role, and God can use who he wants, and he uses governments as those who are an avenger, who bring, and God brings wrath upon those who do evil. Pretty tough stuff, huh? So how do citizens of heaven live as citizens on the earth? Well, first of all, we've got to recognize that government has been established by God, by his authority. Second, we need to respect the role of government in society. Well, let me give you the third. You're going to find that in verses 5 through 7. We need to respond obediently and honorably to the government of our country. You see, because of our relationship with Christ, citizens of heaven really should be the very best citizens on the earth. And so notice what he says in verse 5. Therefore... It is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. He's saying, as a believer, as those who are united with Christ, living transformed lives through the strength of Christ, we are to what? Be in subjection to the governing authorities. And he gives you two reasons why. One, you see that in verse 5? Not only because of wrath. 
idea is that you, you're fearful of breaking the laws and the consequences that come with that. That's one. But then there's a second. But you see that in verse 5? But also for conscience sake. Fear is perhaps the lowest motivation for why a Christian should follow through with the laws of the land. It's the idea like, I don't want to get caught. I don't like paying money. I don't like penalties. I don't want to go to prison. I don't like jail. I don't want to lose my life. I'm afraid. So I'm going to follow the law. But friends, that's the lowest level or reason or motive for why you should follow the laws. Don't miss verse 5. He also says, but also for conscience sake. The highest. You and I function at a different level if we know Christ. We have a conscience that is spirit-led, scripturally informed, and we understand that all of our life is lived before the living God. We're not just like, oh, I just don't want to get caught. I don't want to pay a penalty. No, we're living our lives for the glory of God, and we know that God observes and sees all things. And so we respond to our conscience. Now, let's just a word about conscience. Everybody has one. Believer, non-believer, everybody has a conscience. It's basically like a warning mechanism that when violated, goes off. Your conscience is basically informed by your highest sense of morality. So whether you learn that from your mother or at school or perhaps you became Christian, you started reading the Bible, you go to a church, and you start hearing morality or ethics that are developed from the Scripture, whatever your source of truth is, when you violate your conscience, when you violate what you know to be true or right or you do what is wrong, your conscience goes off and says, no, you shouldn't do this. Right? You know what I'm talking about, right? All of us have at times like, I shouldn't do this, but boy, this will sure feel good or whatever. You know, this will be a lot of fun. And it's like, eh, eh, you shouldn't do this. For the spirit-filled Christian, for the person who is walking with Christ, this goes off. And I do not do this. This is not the course of wisdom. This is dishonoring to Christ. This is going to be a lot of pain to your life. I can tell you this, that you can come to a place where you literally, like, sear your conscience. You violate it over and over and over again. You see this in, like, some habitual criminals that they It doesn't even work anymore because you've just made it a pattern to violate your conscience. For you and I, we are going to obey and subject ourselves to governing authorities, not just because we don't want to to face some sort of wrath, but also for conscience sake. And notice what he says in verse 6. And for because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So, like on the issue of taxes, many people would like to not pay so many taxes, right? But God says, I want you to live honorably and submit to the governing authorities over you. Pay them. By the way, anytime that you're not sure if you should do something or not, legally, ask God, Lord, should I or should I not? He will give you a clear answer, and I have found this one little principle to be very helpful. When in doubt, don't. God will lead you. He will lead his people. He promised to do so. And one of the things he says is, I want you to pay taxes. Now, for the uh, for the early Christian in the Roman Empire, this was a pretty tough bill to fill. I mean, think about it. I mean, Romans had all sorts of taxes. They were taxing their 
their people hard. In fact, they would take over different countries and tax them harshly to pay for their livelihood. So, for instance, there are some good things that came from paying taxes, like roads. Um, you had government, which could have been good or bad, but you had one. It's the strongest, most impressive society yet on the human earth. But on the other hand, then, uh, the government was supported by taxes, paid for the armies. That could be good or bad. But then, of course, you also had your taxes paying for temples and specifically emperor worship. And for the early Christian, they're like, this is extremely difficult. Mind you, Nero is in power. But he hasn't gone ballistic on Christians yet. That's going to come in just a couple of years. But what's going to happen is he is going to turn the Roman government and make Christians the scapegoat. And it's going to be horrendous. And this text says pay taxes. In essence, they're going to pay taxes that is fueling their own persecution. This is, if you and I think like, well, we got bad tax issues and problems here. Friends, it does not compare to what the early Christian faced with the Romans and what they were doing with their tax money. Now, certainly the Roman government in the first century was pagan, despotic, oftentimes ruthless. But to make matters worse, uh, in the final years of the Roman Empire, it became a welfare state. Meaning you had fewer and fewer people who actually paid taxes, and those who were working had to pay even more taxes because they were supporting not only the army and not only all these military endeavors and the temples, but they were supporting the lifestyle of the elite, rich, wealthy upper class of Rome who did not work. And so you had this just huge burden. And yet God says, I, I want you to live your life as a testimony, and I want you to actually pay taxes. These rulers, they're, they're servants of God. They may be far from him. They may not know him, but they deserve their pay. You and I, let's take it up to today's time. We've got some taxation issues in our country, don't we? You? Right? But I want you to think about government. I mean, it, it provides law and order, police, fire protection. It maintains a stable society. And so he says, you may not always understand this, and we talked about those issues last week, but verse 7, render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, which is interesting, the word render is the exact same word that Jesus used when he said, render unto Caesar. It's literally to pay back what you already owe. Custom to whom custom, uh, the idea of, some sort of duty fee, perhaps, that was brought in uh, for something that you were bringing in of value. Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. But he says, I want you, as a citizen of heaven, to pay your taxes while you're a citizen on earth. Now, we've got all sorts of taxes. Did you know that? I've been doing some research on taxes, and I found out that Americans, in general, will pay over 97 taxes. Did you know that? I'm not saying every American pays 97 taxes, but as a collective whole, we're going to pay, there's 97 different taxes. This is amazing. Someone's genius up there at the RS, but they actually have every letter in the alphabet covered, A to Z. For instance, you have air transportation tax. I'm like, well, how are they going to get Z, right? They have a zoning permit fees. They're taxes. They're taxes that appear everywhere. He says, as a citizen of heaven, 
We're to pay these. We got sales tax, utility tax, capital gains tax, inheritance tax, real estate tax, income tax. There are taxes everywhere. And at times it's difficult for us to like, ah, this is going through really bad stuff. But we are to honor God by actually honoring our government and doing even as the text says, to pay tax to whom taxes do. Custom to whom custom. Notice what he says, we are to give fear to whom fear. The idea of we show sincere respect and honor to whom honor. Did you see that? In a sense, we're not supposed to be despising the people that are working in the government from the top on down. There's a sense that we're supposed to be respecting and, and honoring. And if they are not honorable themselves in their behavior, we will honor the position. But what we need to do is, is we need to reflect Christ. And that's one of the reasons why you and I need the gospel. We're not so good about this, are we? We need a change of heart. We've sinned. We have violated this passage. Yes, we need a Savior. We've got one. But Jesus not only wants to forgive our sins, he wants us to live a new life. And that's a life that looks like Romans 13, 1 through 7. And by the way, if you're going to have your kids being biblical and walking with God, representing Jesus well, you want to start training them early with this kind of mindset. Because what they learn at home is going to have carryover value on how they're going to live at life. And by the way, there's examples in the Bible of believers that served as civil servants and served in the government and did so well. Let me give you some stellar ones, like Joseph in Egypt, number two guy in the Egyptian empire, or Daniel in Babylon. Or then you've got folks like there was a centurion servant, remember, who was, who was very ill and Jesus does his healing. But he doesn't tell that centurion that now believes in him, like, listen, uh, we've got to get you out of the Roman army. There's all bad stuff. There's nothing in the government. No such thing. Or here's a great example. Uh, remember, there's a guy that named Zacchaeus. You know, he like hangs out in a tree because he's so weak. Frankly, he wanted to get away from the people because they hated him because the most despised occupation in Israel was to be a Jewish tax collector. Do you remember, though, when, when Jesus not only comes to his home, but this man places his faith in Christ? And Jesus says, okay, now, we got to get you out of the tax profession because that's just wicked. That's government stuff, man. No, he doesn't do that. Actually, he commissions him to be an honest tax gatherer, right? So he does. Or you got a guy by the name of Cornelius, who was another Roman centurion, under the ministry of Peter. Peter shows up at his house, right? This guy places his faith in Jesus, trusts Jesus as the Lord of his life. Peter doesn't say, now we got to get you out of the army. Or on the island of Cyprus, there was a proconsul by the name of Sergius Paulus. And when he places his faith in Christ, he doesn't abandon the government. He keeps serving. But you do so now as a servant of the Lord. You see, the gospel allows us to live well. And that is what he is seeking to present to us. We can live well. And you can serve as a minister of God and as a servant of the Lord in government. If you really want to get God's perspective on the matter, it's really interesting. The prophet Jeremiah, he actually counsels, and the Lord speaks through him, to actually pray for the people that overtook Israel. So remember, in, uh, in 586, Babylon totally desecrates uh, the southern part of the kingdom, haul all these people off in captivity, and Jeremiah writes this. 
This is what the Lord says. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Jeremiah 29.7. And pray to the Lord. Literally pray to Yahweh on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. These very people that are crushing you and owning you, who have hauled you off, he says, I want you to pray for them. And pray for their well-being because their well-being will get translated to your well-being. It's all life from God's perspective. It's interesting. Some of the most restrictive, totalitarian, of atheistic governments that are out there, hard-on Christians, the result? There is a vibrancy in the church in some of these countries. And then, of course, you've got countries where it's, you're free to worship as you want, democratic environments, Western Europe, Japan. And the church, for the most part, is pathetic, complacent, weak, small. And like a lot of cases, like in Europe, it's just flat out dead. Nice buildings, no life. So let me ask you this. Is civil disobedience ever justifiable in the Bible? Is there ever a time where you and I would disobey governing officials? The only limitation would be is if the government presents us a law or makes a command that is in a direct violation of what God has given in the Word. As we who have a conscience yielded up to God, a life informed by the Word, if we are asked to do something that is in violation of what is clearly spelled out in Scripture, we can't do it. Let me give you some examples from the Bible. Remember when Pharaoh said, listen, we got way too many Jewish people around here. I want you to start he told these, Jew- these midwives to start killing all male babies. That, just, that's it. We're going to end this now. But those Jewish midwives, Exodus chapter 1, they're like, you can't do that. Obviously, life is sacred. Everybody knows these are humans. That's murder. Can't do it. And they didn't. And God blessed them. But they disobeyed. Let me give you another example. Uh, the book of Daniel has multiple examples. Um, remember when Babylon came in, 586, they haul off the very best of the young people. And what they were going to do, their plan was to brainwash them and indoctrinate them so that they would be able to lead future Jewish generations into complete submission to Babylon. That was their plan, and they did. And so guys like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these are some of the elite. And they bring them in, and, then they, and they're trying to wine and dine them. They give them the king's food, the very best food, and all this wine. And Daniel and his buddies are like, we can't do that, because that's going to actually make us defiled. It's breaking the Mosaic Code. Um, so in all respect, they approach the guy who's running the show, the governing official, and respectfully just appeal and say, hey, could we do this? Could we run a little experiment? Um, we're not supposed to be eating this food. I know that. You don't know that? Can we do this? Can we just eat, like, water and vegetables? All right? That's all. And for the next 10 days, that's all we're going to do. And if we're not stronger, sleeker, fatter after 10 days than the others, then you can do whatever you want. But could we? Yeah, well, I know. That's going to work. Listen, you want to eat a bunch of vegetables? I'll tell you where you want to gain some mass. It's the beef and the pork. You know what I'm saying? Like, all right, you want to try? We know where this is going, but, of course, uh, 10 days later which kind of just gives you a glimpse of the power of God, these young men were sleeker, stronger, and fatter. Which, by the way, if you're on the Daniel diet, you know it's working if you're gaining weight, right? I just want to be biblical about the whole thing, all right? 
And so there these boys were. And yet, notice the respect that they showed them. They didn't come up with some sort of self-righteous attitude. They were respectful. Or let me give you another example. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel chapter 3? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has this great idea that he has this, this huge image. And this, this may have been an image of him. And he says, i got this grand idea. We're all going to come together as a nation. We're all going to bow down. I'm going to have the music playing. This is going to be a super spiritual experience. And you all bow down and worship this image. Well, these boys said, you know what? We, we can't do that because we, we happen to know the one true God, and you ain't it, right? We're not going to do that. Well, this infuriated Nebuchadnezzar, so he decides to throw these boys into a furnace. But I want you to listen to how they appeal to him. He says, oh, king, you know, we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. We, we can't do that. He says, all right, well, I'm going to bake you. And they heated that oven up as hot as they could, and they threw those boys in there. But not even, in this case, was even their clothing or even smell like smoke or even a hair of their head was singed. In fact, when Nebuchadnezzar looked through this window that exposed the internal inside of that furnace, he saw four. I believe it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ standing with his people as they went through the fire. Remember, um, we got a new ruler, a guy by the name of Darius, and... uh, the commissioners and satraps, they hated Daniel. He's been around for quite a while now. Because Daniel seems to be this man of God. And they're like, we got to get rid of this guy. Real quick, what you do? You appeal to the ego of the leader and say, listen, we got this deal. Let's, let's make sure that in the next 30 days, the only people, that, the only one you can pray to is you. So if someone has a request, they have to pray to you. Do you like that? Goes, that sounds really good. I like being important. I like people praying to me. That's good. So they set their trap. Daniel's like, Oh, that's fine. But I'm going to go to my house and pray. So they, of course, know this. They catch him. And the edict said that if you did so, that you got to die. So they just throw Daniel into this den of famished lions and just rip him to shreds. And they're done with their problem, right? Well, we know the story. God once again shows himself merciful and mighty. And when, when the king, Darius, goes the next day to see just how shredded Daniel is, he looks and there, behold, is Daniel standing there. And the lions is like hanging out. And you know what's the very first thing he said? He said this. He said, Oh king, okay? Oh, oh king, we I, I've got respect for you. I, oh king, live forever. It's not like he like you're a wicked man. There's respect. But he respectfully disobeyed. And he faced the consequences. Let me give you some New Testament examples. Remember Peter and John? They were told, Acts chapter four. To not speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Remember that? And they said, you know what? Whether it be right in the sight of God to give you heed, uh, guess what? We can't do that. We, We really can't. You be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. And then remember a chapter later? They're saying, what in the world are you doing? We gave you strict orders to stop speaking, and now you've filled this entire city with this man's name. And they said simply this, we must obey God rather than men. And that will be the same for us. If the government should come to a place where they are going to impose their will and start violating clear tenets of Scripture, whether they say that uh, you've got to kill babies, you're working in the health care profession, you, uh, you need to euthanize people, you need to marry homosexuals. You need to bring people on your staff who hold a different faith system or a different morality. 
we're going to have to say in all respect, I'm sorry, we simply can't. And we will have to face whatever consequences come with that. I really want you to develop your convictions based on the Bible. And if you really like to have a rather perplexing discussion, you can take these scriptural passages and apply them to the American Revolution. Not something you're going to quickly resolve in like one or two minutes. It's interesting. Not only does the uh, Scripture tell us to submit to these governments, but Scripture also tells us that Satan oftentimes aligns himself with particular governments. So you see this like in Ezekiel and in Isaiah, the governments of Babylon and Tyre, Satan directly influences and it explains a lot of their evil behavior. We just get, just put a glimpse. I mean, it's, what takes place from what we can't see is all far greater than what we can see. And there's times where, in history, where Christians have submitted to government and they have done so without really thinking about what the government was asking. They uh, didn't want to make waves. They wanted to just go along with the flow. The, the kind of the preeminent example, the most widely discussed um, subject when it comes to the government and what it can do to influence you has to be the case of the Christian's response to the rule of the Nazis in Germany. Now, I want to tell you in all fairness that the response was varied. There were some Christians, when they saw what Hitler was doing in the rise of Nazism and the absolute persecution of Jews and and hauling them off and destroying their businesses. And, and in some cases, they actually found out that they were killing these Jewish people or anybody that opposed them. And they stood up. And they tried to fight it. Some died. However, in most cases, the Christians responded slowly and ineffectively. Um, Germany basically had them in their hand. And the church saw themselves as very dependent upon the government. The government was, was generous in a sense and provided for them all their well-being and their security, funded their churches, you know? I mean, like, golly. And then, of course, you had an amazing propaganda machine. And this particular image here was very famous. It was a stage to, so that you see, it looks like Hitler's coming out of church, contemplative and thinking. And this image was on the forefront of the lines of many Germans. Like, but, but Hitler goes to church with reverence, and, and yet he's asking us to do these things. And they were unable to discern truth from the lies that were being fed to them by their own media. Friends, if we were going to have to disobey our government, we're going to do so with respect. We're going to be able to clearly show from the scriptures they're asking us to do something in violation. And we will face whatever penalties and consequences that come as a result from that. Jesus has said, you know what, I want you to, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I want you to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. In America, you and I, if we see government going in the wrong direction or doing things that are simply not right, we can challenge our government. We can hold them accountable to their responsibilities. We can disagree publicly and respectfully. We can vote. You can vote people out of offices. You can petition leaders. You can write letters. And, you know, when government is really rubbing you the wrong way, one of the intents is to make you yearn for the government of heaven, for the kingdom of the sun, 
when Christ comes back in the second coming and establishes a rule that is righteous and absolutely perfect. But you and I, Romans 13, 7, we are to honor our governing officials. We are to honor our government. That, one of the ways that we do that, according to Second First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, is that we pray for them. And we pray, we make intercessions, supplications, and he even says in First Timothy that we give thanks for them. And when you've got a disagreement with the government, do so in a way that is respectful, honorable, and noble so that you don't become the problem, but that you can actually discuss the issue at hand. I believe that we should be involved in the political process. I think we should exercise our responsibilities. I um, feel like a lot of the issues in our country are very close to the heart of Christians and their morality and their virtues. And I'll tell you, I am disturbed on what's going on. I mean, we are watching the unraveling of America morality. It's, it's happening like faster than we ever could have imagined. And I'd long to see our nation return to a biblical standard. But let me tell you something else that really bothers me and concerns me. And that is the response to that culture by some believers, some churches, and some Christian ministries. You and I, we don't want to fashion ourselves to have a reputation as like rabble-rousing malcontents. That we just foster hostility and that we're just alienating the very people that we are looking to reach, right? I mean... We need to let go of the notion that culture and government are the enemy. It's simply wrong to blame our country's moral problems and disintegration on political parties, liberal conspiracies, and biased media. They are a major part of the problem. But they have never been the root of the problem. Those who are lost are our mission field, not our enemies. Right? And we got to stop acting like government is God or government's the Savior. They are not. And so what we need to do is live lives that manifest transformation. We need to be a winsome witness. We need to walk with God honorably, with integrity, with maturity, with the stability of our emotions to interact well. Second of all, we need to, you need to vote and exercise the responsibilities we have as a citizen. Did you know that... 50% of all Christians actually aren't even registered to vote in our country. And in every election, only 50% of registered Christians actually vote. That means, simple math, only 25% of the Christians actually vote. I will tell you this, that if every Christian voted their values, whoever they voted for would win by a landslide. Do you know that? problem is, I don't think we care. I don't even think we've taken this text in multiple facets to heart like we should. And third, we need to speak the truth in love. We need to speak lovingly. In fact, if we can't speak with love, maybe we're not speaking the truth, right? So, friends, the other thing I want to say is that we need to give government some credit. We live in the envy of the world. I am a big free market guy, and I cherish free enterprise. But the, the beauty of what we have in the country cannot be just reduced to the marketplace alone. I mean, the commonwealth we share in some respects, has even been established by the government that God has given us. We are an, a civilization that brings about envy. And we have a responsibility. In fact, Scripture lies it out here, that you see the citizens of heaven through our relationship with Christ, we should be the best citizens on earth. 
And I'd like to do this. If you serve in any capacity as a, um, in civil service, government, local, national, state, you're in the military, um, you are police, firemen, we'd like to have you stand because we want to recognize you and pray for you. So could you? We had it done in first service. If you're in civil service, no one in here? Thank you. Awesome. Listen, thank you. You're a minister of God, and we want to pray for you. Let's do that. Lord, this is a pretty amazing text, and you clearly spell out what it means to walk with God as a citizen of heaven living on this earth. So, Lord, we pray for those who are governing authorities. Would you guide them and guard them? Would they know the hope and the promise of Jesus? May they look to you for wisdom. And, Father, for all of us, may we truly live lives that are worshipful, even in this sphere of how we respond to the governing officials. Our lives are to be lived for your glory. That's only possible through your Son. So we ask for his strength and wisdom. We pray in Jesus' name.